Well, good morning. Thank you for being here this morning. It's just uh, so exciting to hear all that the Lord is doing in this city uh, through in his hands and through Crossroads NOLA, what he's doing to raise up the church to serve, serve those who are in need. So just excited to get to partner with that and just want to encourage you to take some time uh, this afternoon to attend the lunch. If you've had any stirring from God, any sort of inkling of uh, wanting to do something to, to serve those in, in need in the foster care system, just be a wonderful opportunity for you to pursue. Well, Pastor Keith is out of town this weekend. Gina kidnapped him for his birthday, and we haven't decided yet whether or not we want to pay the ransom to get him back. Um, but seriously, you know, there's always a danger of doing this either too much or too little, but uh, let me just express my appreciation for our leadership team, for the staff and the elders, and, and for Keith in particular. And, you know, Keith would be, yes, please participate in that. We were talking uh, this morning in the new members class about leadership in in the church, and just so grateful that God has, has given us leaders that, and, and a congregation who desires and delights to, to follow leaders, to do what Hebrews 13, 7 says, to follow their example. And, and Keith would be the first person to tell you that God is the one who leads this church, um, but he's given us a uniquely gifted man uh, to do so. In this series, he's just led us through on, on drawing near. It's just been so helpful, hasn't it? I've just found it to be so timely for me personally and for the life of our church, and I hope we've sought to benefit from it as much as we can. Uh, well, that series is actually concluded, but let's continue to live in the good of it this year, amen? Uh, but what we're planning to do next is to return to an expository study and to do so through the book of Exodus, and a key theme for Exodus is God's desire to be near to his people, to bring his presence to them and to rescue them from the things that uh, hold them in slavery. Uh, but there's also just an emphasis on God's authority and law and sovereignty over our lives, things that require attention in the day that we live. And, and so that's where we're heading but we thought we'd take a few weeks to catch up to Exodus by looking at three major sections in the book of Genesis. So if you'd please turn with me to Genesis chapter 1. Start at the very beginning. Well, the Academy Awards were last week. That wonderful occasion for Hollywood to congratulate itself while the world watches I uh, turned it on just in time to, to catch Lady Gaga commemorate Julie Andrews' performance in The Sound of Music, which is that's an interesting clash of associations, you know. Uh, but one of the films that was nominated for several awards was a movie titled Boyhood. And, and I haven't seen it, but it, it follows the story of a boy's life from age 6 to 18. And it was filmed over the course of 12 years with, with the same actor, and so you literally watch him grow up before your eyes. It's probably not a wise choice for sappy parents or sentimental basket cases like our senior pastor, uh, or for people who prefer a movie with a plot. I don't know. But what's interesting is that even as you track with this actor through his coming-of-age experience, what you're really watching is a character in a film. You see the actor's physical appearance change, but, but he's been picked up and transported into another story. 
another world. And in order to know who you are, you need to know the story that you're a part of. Now, please know this. The Bible is a story from Genesis, Genesis to Revelation. It's telling one unfolding drama of God's work in this world. And if you try to treat the Bible like it mainly exists to help you figure out whatever need you're facing today, you're going to end up frustrated. If you just flip it open and come away disappointed because it didn't tell you how to deal with the situation or make a quick decision, the problem is you haven't realized the kind of book that you're reading. The Bible is not a best helps, uh, bestseller of a self-help kind. It's a book about God that goes somewhere. It's a story. And Genesis is the introduction to that storyline. To open to Genesis 1 is like to enter another world. Only you then realize this is our world. This is the world that God has made. It's the way the world really is. And you need to know this before you try to handle anything else. In the last week, Pastor Keith talked about people attempting to do life and seek remedies to its problems without acknowledging God. And it doesn't work. You can't fix life without knowing how it was designed to be lived. And you can't cure conditions by just addressing symptoms and not dealing with the underlying cause. You need to know what life was meant to be and where it went wrong from the very beginning. And so you'll never be able to correctly answer the question, who am I, without answering the question, who is God? Mark Seifert writes... We cannot analyze ourselves. We must be told by God who we are and what we should be. Now that sounds both foreign and offensive to our culture, like he's just insulted us in Chinese or something, uh, because we're not used to being told this. I've heard it said that the most offensive verse in the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, because what that says is that meaning isn't something that we get to make. It's something that we get to discover because God has already created it. But if that's really true, it won't work to complain about it. J.P. Moreland says, Truth is when a thought, belief, or assertion matches reality. On this view, people discover truth. They do not Create it. Reality is what it is. You get introduced to it. You don't get to define it. You know, you don't get to decide whether or not you want the law of gravity to work today. Gravity is just a fact that you better be prepared to accommodate. It won't do to protest it. Your picket sign or your angry tweet will be of no avail to you if you jump out of a building trying to fly. And there are some features of life that you just get to be introduced to. And that's what this book accomplishes. It's an introduction to reality. It welcomes you to the real world, the world that God has made. And the the book of Genesis is essentially designed to answer two questions. Who is God and who are we? And that's what the original audience needed to hear. According to the rest of the Bible, 
Uh, the book of Genesis was written by Moses, and, and so it was initially written to the generation of Israelites who were coming out of Egypt in the Exodus. And so it prepares us as we approach studying that book next. But when God, when Moses turns to God and asks him, hey, when I go to the people, who should I tell them is sending me? God's short answer is, I am that I am. But his longer answer is the book of Genesis. It tells them about the God whom they serve and the special status as his people they've inherited because of a man named Abraham, which we'll look at next week. Now, maybe these concepts hadn't been forgotten altogether, but they were apparently in need of attention. The problem is they were coming out of the land of Egypt where they had encountered some radically different stories and explanations of the world. And so they needed to rehearse the true story. And stories are so influential for how you understand and approach life. It's one of the reasons why we love movies so much. And G.K. Chesterton said that everything he learned about life came from reading fairy tales. And that view of the world was only confirmed as he encountered the facts. Or as C.S. Lewis put it, his imagination was converted first and then later his intellect caught up. But the problem is this can work in both directions. And Lewis explores this in his science fiction novel, Paralandra. In this novel, he pictures another world with its own Adam and Eve who have their Garden of Eden encounter. But the way he presents the experience of temptation is just fascinating. There's this character named Weston who serves as the Satan figure, and he sets out to persuade the Eve of this world known as the lady to disobey her maker. But at first, her only response is to be puzzled. Rebellion just doesn't make sense to her unfallen mind. It's like the words that he uses have no meaning. And so recognizing that argument is pointless, the tempter changes his tactic, and he begins to tell her stories. He starts to describe with beauty and emotion tales about a, a woman who stood alone and braved a terrible risk. And even though she was misunderstood and reviled for it, in, in the end, she was vindicated by the event. You see what he's doing? He's trying to get her to come to a new reality in which disobeying God is actually noble and courageous. But he doesn't do that by just coming out with an argument. He attempts to slowly break her down with new associations. And our culture does this. Every song and film and advertisement is broadcasting to you an alternative view of the world. But it doesn't come out sounding like a philosophy textbook. And so we need to develop not just ideas but convictions. We need to know the true story well and allow our thinking and imagination to be shaped by the real world. All right, well, with that, let's read Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. 
And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. We'll stop there for now and seek God's help. God, would you awaken us to these more important, these most important of truths. Lord, we need to be taken in by this text. We need to be taken in by you. Lord, there is an intended effect. Lord, there there are desires that you have in inspiring the book of Genesis and giving it to your people. Lord, would, would that result take place this morning? Lord, everything that you desire for us to encounter by reading your word, would we experience it? Would we come away having not just interacted with some words, but having met the real and living God? Or drawn near to your people this morning as we draw near to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink wrote this. He says, The essence of the Christian religion consists in the reality that the creation of the Father... Ruined by sin is restored in the death of the Son of God and recreated by the grace of the Holy Spirit into a kingdom of God. It describes for us God, always God from beginning to end. God in his being, God in his creation, God against sin, God in Christ, God breaking down all resistance through the Holy Spirit and guiding the whole of creation back to the objective he decreed it for, the glory of his name. That's the storyline of the Bible. And those are the foundational elements of a Christian worldview. So I want to work through these as we look at the first three chapters of Genesis. Starting with God. Verse 1. In the beginning, God. God is the subject of the first sentence in the Bible. And his name appears 35 times in this chapter. And so from the opening of scripture, we are confronted with the living God. He's personal. And notice that Genesis doesn't attempt to provide any sort of origin or explanation for God. He just is. From the absolute beginning of time, God is already there. And this is such a contrast to the creation stories of the surrounding religions in Israel's day. This is utterly unique. You know, the other creation accounts begin with the birth of the gods themselves. For example, the Babylonian myth called the Enuma Elish begins with the marsh waters and goop getting together to generate the gods. But you'll find nothing like that here. Which is why Psalm 96.5 says, All the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. And by idols, they mean vain imaginations, cheap counterfeits. There are your pretend ideas about ultimate reality, and then there's what's true. And the book of Genesis just loves to mock idolatry. In chapter 31, Laban's daughter, Rachel, takes some of his household gods. And when he comes into her tent looking for them, she she hides them by sitting on them. And then tells him that she can't get up because it's that time of the month for her. And, And the absurdity is just on full display. 
A God who can be stolen and sat on is no God at all. And this text doesn't come out playing nice. From the beginning, it takes specific aim at the rival deities and pretenders. You know, the Egyptians worshipped the sun and the moon as gods. But Genesis 1 doesn't even give them a name. In verse 16, they're just called the greater and lesser lights. They're wonderful things that God has made, but themselves just part of the creation under his control. Now, modern man may not be tempted to worship Ra or Marduk, but he is prone to say things like Carl Sagan said, that the cosmos is all there is or has been or ever will be. But here in verse 1, God is there and he is all that is there. Nothing existed before God commanded it into existence. There was just God. But this God is not alone. And and there are at least three hints in the text that tell us this. In verse 1, the Hebrew term for God is in the plural, but the verb for create is singular. So that's interesting. And then verse 2, the Spirit of God is present and hovering over the new creation. And then in verse 26, when God makes man, he says, let us. Make man in our image and after our likeness. And and so the information is still pretty reticent at, at this point. But already we're introduced to the fact that God is both unity and plurality. He is, as we find out later, one being existing in three persons. He is the triune God. And you'll never convince me that this is something that we would make up. But what this means is that God doesn't create out of need. He doesn't make us because he was lonely and wanted somebody to talk to. And sometimes the new atheists complain that the God of the Bible is some sort of needy person who makes people to worship him because he has self-esteem issues and probably had a bad experience in kindergarten. Uh, But this could not be further from the truth. There is no unfulfilled expectation in God. Before anything else exists, he is, from all eternity, completely happy in the fellowship of his own triune being. The three persons already perfectly delighted in their relationship of love. And so creation, then, is just the overflow of that joy. It's the God who's always existed in abundance, determining to share that with others. And that's why he made you and me. And he creates everything by his spoken word. Verse 3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. He speaks and his creation responds in obedience. He merely says the word. And there are planets and molecules, oceans and cell plasma, whales and centipedes, koala bears and fungus spores, and human beings like you and me. You ever think about this? How is it that you exist? I'm sure there's 
biology and chemistry. They, they provide some explanation for how your body works. Beneath that, the molecules of your body obey the laws of particle physics. But what's underneath it all? What's beneath the atoms and electrons and quarks? What holds it all together? Words. Divine words. As Hebrews 1 says, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He gives things permission to be. Can you imagine this? If God were to stop thinking you into existence, you would cease to be right now. He's holding you together. Beneath all reality is the word of God. It's the storyteller's will, the author sustaining existence because he wants the narrative to continue. And every day is just another page in the story he's telling God's speech expresses his intentions in the world he's made. He says, let there be, and the consistent response is, and it was so. So everything corresponds to how he desires. And this tells us something about creation itself. First, it tells us that there is design and order. Genesis 1 is a highly structured account. We've seen the let there be pattern. But there's also this pattern of forming and filling. On, on days one, two, and three, God forms structures. And then on days five, six, and seven, or rather four, five, and six, he fills them with content. Here's what I mean. This is in your notes. On day one, God makes light and darkness. And then on day four, he makes the lights of the day and the night. On day two, he makes the sea and the sky. And on day five, he makes the creatures of water and air. On day three, he makes the dry land. And on day six, he makes the creatures of the land. And it's it's like there are these blueprints that God follows. And everything happens according to schedule and, and, and right on cue. He follows his plans exactly. You ever worked with a contractor who didn't really deliver on what was promised? (laughs) Sorry to the contractors who are in here. I'm not talking about you, of course. Uh, But you know the guys. They're always underbidding. They don't anticipate how long something will take. Ignore important details of the plan. God is not that kind of builder. He follows his perfect design. And by the way, that design is detectable in nature. I'll just note this quickly. My main concern is just to let this text speak for itself and not have it answer all the questions we bring to it with our modern curiosities. But I'll just say this about science. Do you know that the universe is incredibly fine-tuned for intelligent life? And this is something that scientists Recognize if you were to just slightly adjust the constants and quantities of physics, not only would there be no life as we know it, but there would be no stars, no matter. Everything would just collapse in on itself. And to describe how precise these values need to be met among all the possible combinations that they just as easily 
could have been. One scientist puts it like this. He says, imagine one of those old radio dials. Remember, you turn the knob and have to tune it in to precision, otherwise you're getting static on either side. Imagine a radio dial that's the size of the known universe. And you have to tune it in to within one trillionth of an inch. Otherwise, we're not here. Consider this. There's more information in the DNA of a single cell in your body than there is represented in all of Wikipedia. You carry around inside of you literally volumes and volumes of encyclopedias and and not just jumbled letters, but intelligent information. As Stephen Myers put it, God has left his signature in your cells. There's design and, and there is meaning and order. Creation is not haphazard. Again, in the pagan mythologies, we exist as like the afterthought of some sort of warfare in heaven. The, the earth is the result of the, one of the carcasses of one of the gods getting chopped up or something uh, like that. And in the Darwinian story, we are a cosmic accident. Just the product of random mutation happening to snot on a tiny planet in the midst of a vast and expanding space. But not so here. We exist on purpose because we are wanted because we are loved because we match the will of the maker and there's a wonderful picture in this text of god managing the chaos it starts in verse 2 with the earth being without form and void with darkness and the primordial Waters, But right there in the midst of the void, in the middle of the chaos, the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And it's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 32 of a, a mother eagle that hovers over her nest with expectation. God has excited anticipation for how he will bring order out of the mess. He will shape the clay as he pleases. He forms the unformed and forms and fills up the void with his creative purposes. What does this mean? What does having a conscious awareness of the doctrine of creation mean for our lives? Well, it means we don't live in a chaotic, anything can happen world. Do you struggle with anxiety and fear? If you think about it, that's the understanding of life that is informing our worries. That's the storyline you're following. Life feels like it's spinning out of control. Like there's too much to manage. Like at any moment, everything will cave in. And so you better get it together because that's your best hope. Do you try to take control by filling your mind with all the possibilities, all the things that could go wrong? Does it race through everything that you better deliver in order for the world to not fall apart? Listen, no matter how many times you run it through your mind, you have no more control, no more certainty. No better grasp of the problems that you face. By the way, this is what obsessive compulsive disorder is all about. We 
call it that politely, but it's really an attempt to manage the chaos through your ticks and rituals and double-checking. Did you lock the door before you came here this morning? Did you leave the stove on? Do you need to go back and find out? And some of you are starting to freak out about now. <laughs> because we joke about this, but you really struggle with this. And you can start to sound crazy. Are you going to get in a car accident when you leave here? Is something horrible and unpredicted going to happen to your family? Does it feel like you live in a world where anything goes? That's not the kind of creation you find here. We do live in a fallen world, as we'll come to in a moment, and it, it is devastating. But even then, it remains under its maker's control. And for God's people, nothing comes their way by divine neglect. Everything's part of his loving design. Again, Herman Babbing writes, Struggling one, you can live only if you begin with a quiet trust that you are living in a meaningful universe which was conceived and made by the eternal Father. That's reality. All right, this is something to meditate on every day. We don't live in the world of Alice in Wonderland. This is our Father's world. And to our listening ears, all nature sings and around me rings the music of the spheres. That's what this means. It also means that we need to discover God's intentions in order to live life as it was meant. If, if this is God's world, if he's designed it to operate a certain way, then again, that's just something we get to discover. It's not something we've been invited to change. I know our culture tells us the opposite every chance it gets. That pleasure and sex and marriage and life itself have shifting definitions that they're these malleable items that we get to shape however we want or at least according to whatever the gender study department currently tells us. But what if that's not the case? What if there really is a fixed reality? What if God has created things to function a certain way? Well, what if you were designed to know and love God and follow his plan and that true and lasting happiness can be found only in this? Then it's not cruel to inform you of that. It's the definition of loving. You know, it won't do to step into a passenger train and insist that it should be able to run on the highway. Trains are designed to run on the tracks. And so you need to go where the tracks go. But trains can run at unimaginable speeds when they're working according to plan. And creation can be used well because it matches God's intentions. It's good. And that's the second thing we learn about Creation. Creation is not God. We've seen how Genesis seeks to combat that idea. And ever since the fall, the human tendency has been to bow down to and to worship the stuff that God made while we put him on the shelf. But we don't want to do the opposite error and raise our eyebrows with suspicion at anything that sounds like fun. As if enjoying the physical world is wrong. Because creation is good. Look, look at the summary statement in verse 31. 
And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And that's God's conclusion. As you look at the next chapter, that includes things like food and sex and a garden of delights. And so if you love beautiful sunsets and striking flavors and Sunday afternoon naps, then you are doing something very right. All right, well, let's look at the crowning feature of God's creation, his making humanity in his image. Now, describing humanity as unique and set apart from the natural world is increasingly challenged today. There's ironically a growing anti-humanism developing among secular humanists. And for example, there, there's a short film circulating on YouTube with Julia Roberts speaking as Mother Nature, addressing humanity. And, and nature says, I don't need people, but people need me. I've been here longer than you, and I'll outlive you. Uh, now, the basic message that we should treat the natural world responsibly is a good one, but, but the way that it's communicated, it takes the perspective of Genesis and just flips it on its head. Because the climax of this chapter comes in on day six in verse 26. Then God said, and you should have this passage memorized if you've been in school of the word at all this year, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that, that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just takes three different ways to say the th- same thing because it's recognizing how important this is. The other day I was holding my uh, soon-to-be seven-month-old son, Knox, in the mirror, and he was just smiling and doing what a baby does. Uh, And it just, it suddenly struck me. He looks like me. (laughs) And I know it sounds sappy to say it, but there's, there's just this surge of excitement that came from this, and, and can you imagine the joy that God experiences in creating people that look like Him, who mirror in their capacities and knowledge and desires what God is like? I realize this because if you really believe it, it'll change the way that you treat people and relate to them. There is In every person you encounter in this world, something of God. As Valjean says in Les Mis, to love another person is to see the face of God. And in the Christian storyline, there's inherent dignity to every human being, every person regardless of age, race, gender, religion, or perceived sexual orientation, is equally valuable before God. And so let's be sure that that informs the way you view people in this world. But it also tells us the purpose for our existence, to know and display the one who 
made us. We were made to think God's thoughts after him and to broadcast what he is like to the ends of the earth as the world is filled with his character and love. But we know that's not where things remained, right? The major chapter to follow creation in the biblical storyline is the falls. Flip over to Genesis chapter 3. Here's how the early chapters of Genesis are structured. In Genesis 1.1, you have the creation of the universe. The heavens and the earth is just Hebrew shorthand for everything. Uh, And then you zoom in to the earth itself and to see how God prepares it for humanity. But then in chapter 2, you zoom in further to a garden. And that's when the pace of the narrative slows down and we're told about how God made Adam and Eve and how he created the institution of marriage and defined it for all time, by the way. But it's here that God welcomes them to eat of any tree in the garden, but not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does this represent? Well, in context, it stands for the desire for independent knowledge. To think about life and the world separate from the thoughts of the one who made it. Look at Derek Kidner says, he says, as the tree stood prohibited, it presented the alternative to discipleship. To be self-made, resting one's knowledge, satisfactions, and values from the created world in defiance of the creator. And it's this independent knowledge that Satan draws attention to. In chapter 3, a dragon enters the scene, and he offers an alternative explanation for reality. Look at verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Now we, we don't know if this dialogue represents everything that was said. Or if it's just a a summary of how it went down, maybe it's close to how Mr. Lewis imagined it. We're not told. But, But here the devil begins with a question. But notice he's already distorted God's word in the process. He expresses God's prohibition. He expands it to include all the trees in the garden. Now, this subtle, smuggled-in detail apparently had an effect on Eve because it, it, it plants in her mind the idea that maybe God doesn't have good intentions for them after all. Because while she corrects his error, she contributes her own. Look in verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden... But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Of course, that part about touching it is her own addition. Making God seem more stingy and prudish than, her, than his original command conveyed. And so sensing, I just lost sound, didn't I? I don't know if that's part of it or not. 
Are we all right? Sorry. So sensing that she's beginning to doubt God's word, his goodness and generosity, the tempter moves forward with an outright denial. In verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. Now, it's interesting that the first doctrine to be denied is the doctrine of judgment. It's no wonder that just about the only thing our culture knows how to say is that you shouldn't judge. But then he offers this projected insight into God's true motives. Verse 5, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Of course, they were already like God in the most important sense. They were made in his image. Isn't that enough? But here is the proposal to be like God in another way. To be your own God. To determine your own identity and purpose apart from the one who made you. A redefinition, a, a renaming of the character we're called to play is presented. The serpent suggests that Adam and Eve can make themselves the author of their own tale. Uh, the German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche offered this argument for atheism. Point one, if there were a God, how could I bear to not be a God? <laughs> Point two, consequently, there is no God. Uh, Of course, that's not really an argument against God's existence so much as it's an argument that the fall really happened. And he's surprisingly candid in his self-understanding. If we were just as honest, we'd recognize the same impulse resides in us as well. It goes back to our original parents. And what Satan proposes to them is a whole-scale reinterpretation of reality. Derek Kidner puts it well. He says, the climax is a lie big enough to reinterpret life. This breath is the power of a false system. And dynamic enough to redirect the flow of affection and ambition. To be as God and to achieve it by outwitting him is an intoxicating program. God will henceforth be regarded consciously or not as rival. And enemy. So the tempter pits his bare assertion against the word and works of God, presenting divine love as envy, service as servility, and a suicidal plunge as a leap into life. All these things I will give thee. The pattern repeats in Christ's temptation and in ours. So the woman and the man find the offer to be irresistible and That's how we've tried to live life ever since. To our own destruction. Tragedy enters the story of humanity. This is the fall. It's the tragedy of dislodging the creator from his proper place in the the heart of man. And everything that is wrong in the world can be traced to this. As the Westminster Shorter Catechism states that mankind fell into a state of sin and misery. And this is the kind of explanation of life that only the Bible provides. Why does life feel the way it does? Why does 
depression exist? Why does relational strife enter marriages and friendships? Why does disease steal life away from loved ones too early? Why do people get twisted up in their fears and and caged inside of their problems and patterns of self-destructive behavior that they mysteriously return to again and again? Why is there so much resistance and hostility? Why? Because this is a fallen world. But we have a God who loves to reverse fallen conditions. And we already see this early in Genesis. The story should have ended there, but this is a redemptive storyline. Verse 8. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? What a question this is. Where are they? They are dislocated from God's purposes. They are hiding in the garden, covering their shame with fig leaves, doing the same kind of self-atonement that we always attempt. And here is God already moving toward them with restoration. He approaches them and asks some mercifully directed and pointed questions. And they shift the blame and attempt to change the subject, but the Lord sees right through it. He won't allow their evasions. He addresses their need head on. It's in the rest of the text as you read it. Only sacrifice will remedy this situation. Only blood spilt will clothe us. Only the bruised heel of the woman's seed will crush the head of the snake. And so, redemption is promised. Salvation is set in motion. God is on the move. And next week we'll find him locate a man named Abraham, lost in his idolatry, but hounded down by God with eager blessing as he continues his project to make all things new. Friends, this is the world that you live in. This is the storyline that you are a part of. This is the God that you know. Remember this. Rehearse this. Call it to mind in the moments of despair. In the times of panic. When guilt sets in. When When this world has almost convinced you that this life is all that there is. We serve a creator who has embedded purpose into this world and who's mercifully returning us to it through Christ. Let's stand together. So thankful for the kindness of God to bring his revelation to us and do so again and again. 
Maybe for some of us, some new categories were introduced. Uh, For many of us, we're familiar with the basic contents of Genesis 1 through 3, right? But as we've talked through in our previous series, that doesn't mean we're consciously aware of them. It doesn't mean that we are living in light of this being what is real. That's why God steps in, and and, and settings like this are, we we hope there are moments where we get to escape the disorientation, and then life has a disorienting effect. You kind of lose sight of where you're heading. It's like you enter into a tunnel, and you don't remember if, what's the destination at the end of this? But when we draw near to God, we meditate on what is true, he reminds us, you're part of something meaningful. Right, look at this thought from John Bloom. He says, What might make no sense to us today is in fact so shot through with meaning that we would be struck speechless in worshipful awe if we knew all that God was doing. Therefore, do not give in to the temptation to cynicism because you cannot yet make sense of events occurring in the world or in your own life. This is what he says. That is the common experience of a character in a larger story. Trust the author. Someday he will tell you the story in full. You will be blown away. Let's pray. Lord, we want to have that trust. Lord, we want to have a a reflex in us that is developed. It's developed at the level of conviction because we know you. And therefore, we're not blown all the way through life. Lord, we're near to you. And we take your word as true. So Lord, help us to really believe everything we've discussed this morning. There's a God who is there, a God who is not silent, a God who is available to us, a God who has made a meaningful world that is managed under his control, that has fallen and broken, but is being mercifully restored by our Redeemer. Would we love these truths more and more every day? Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Concluding the song. Jesus, friend of sinners, love me here I knew. His cords of love tightly bound me to Him. Now my heart still closely twined, the ties that none can sever. For I am His and He is mine, ever and forever. Jesus, friend of sinners, a crown of thorns, a crown of thorns you wore for me, bruised for my transgressions, pierced for my iniquities, the wrath of God that I deserved, poured out on me. 